listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, your host for this week's podcast. Our guest this week is Power for All CEO Christina Skierka. Power for All is an organization that aims to bring renewable distributed energy to people that live in rural areas by partnering with organizations in both the public and private sectors. According to the World Bank's 2017 State of Electricity Access Report, 1.06 billion people still don't have access to electricity. And while progress is being made on a global basis, the world and specific countries in particular are still falling short of the pace of change that's necessary to meet global universal energy access goals by 2030. Christine is not only the CEO of Power for All, but she co-wrote the report Power for All, the Energy Access Imperative in 2014, and has more than 20 years of experience with energy and environmental leadership initiatives, working both with private companies and in the public sector. Thanks for joining me today, Christina. Yeah, happy to. Thank you. So to begin with, can you discuss the origins of Power for All and maybe share with us how its efforts complement or contribute to the larger challenge of reaching the UN Sustainable Development Goal on Energy? Sure. So a little bit about the history of Power for All. You know, it's actually not a a sort of a unique idea in a lot of ways. And in fact, the idea that decentralized energy is not only uh, a faster way and more affordable way to get uh, energy to people, um, but but that actually it's it's actually a better solution, especially for people in rural areas. It's been around for a while. Um, I guess what's different about Power for All and, and why we thought there were um, was really the the nexus of a campaign here um, comes down to the fact that nobody was really sort of banging the drum for this sector globally. Um, when I first got started in working in this sector, so uh, thanks for mentioning my, my history working in energy efficiency and clean tech for a number of years, um, but when I first started working internationally in this sector, um, which definitely is focused on development outcomes, you know, we were still hearing things like people referring to these products, you know, small solar home systems, mini grids as toys. And in fact, many people in the global leadership space basically talked about this idea of shining a light on poverty is basically all you can do with these small systems. But I think what was missing from that debate and one of the things we really wanted to head on was a real understanding of how energy is used in these rural areas. You know, it's definitely on the level of watts in many cases, not kilowatts. And so that means a very different solution. And um, so really, uh, the theory of change of power for all begins with really bolstering, I think, what this sector is able to deliver and that it deserves a a seat at the table with the rest of the energy industry. Um, But beyond that, really proving um, what can be done by following this approach to universal electrification. And so taking on the sort of naysayers both inside and outside of the sector was a big piece of what the campaign um, was born to do. I think another thing that's different about Power for All as well is it really came from the sector itself. So I myself was working for a number of years with a company called D-Light, one of the sort of leading lights, if you will, of this sector, been in business, you know, for over a decade. But beyond that, I mean, just sort of really stretching back, you know, uh, the, the SDGs, which are fantastic and we're just so excited to see a, a global commitment to achieving energy for all. I think one of the things that's distinct is that the SDGs really were designed top down and as was sustainable energy for all, a great global initiative for 
from the UN. But it's very different from something that comes from the bottom up and comes from the companies itself. It comes from the, the development community and comes from the actual activists in the countries. And that's really what Powerful is about, is how do we organize this, you know, sort of collective mission, collective focus, and really enable the ecosystem to create the conditions it needs for success. Well, it's great because it sounds like an organizational initiative that really matches what folks today, which I think you're right, probably has been a trend that's been around for longer than we publicly recognize, but that technology in particular is enabling distributed energy resources to to play a much larger strategic role in the question of how to answer some of these access issues writ large. What are some of the successes and obstacles that you've had so far in the Power for All experience in not just uh, enabling more distributed uh, renewable energy uh, projects and things like that, but also making this voice for that community bigger and sort of play at a larger level? Let me take challenges first, and then we'll end on a high note with successes. And when it comes to challenges, the number one thing is shifting the perception of what decentralized energy can do. And that comes down to a couple of things, and it's data and information. And so in terms of information, you know, and and this now connects to the success, is, is really putting sometimes for the first time, putting the information in the hands of decision makers about what happens with decentralized renewables, how it can be a complement to national goals for universal electrification, and how it can actually be a tool to get there better, faster, cheaper. You know, and when it comes to information and sort of the data, at the same time, the sector is beginning now to really build up a a strong evidence base of success. What we do know for sure is how long and how much money it costs to site uh, a power plant, a traditional coal-fired or fossil fuel power plant in many of these countries. And we're looking at a a timescape of up to a decade. And, you know, and, and when you look at both the reliability of this traditional approach to energy, as well as its ability to be democratized, in other words, affordable and accessible to a wide range of people, it's just not even in the cards um, in many cases. Now, it's not saying that the grid is not part of the solution. It absolutely is. But when we're talking about the 1 billion people without access to energy, you know, the vast majority, 85 to 90 percent of those live in rural areas where it's just not the right decision from a cost or time perspective to build a grid and extend transmission lines. So I think, you know, in terms of success, being able to really sort of shift the narrative and help people understand that when you put together the companies that serve this sector, together we're already providing energy to more customers. Now it's a different scale of energy, but to more customers than most of the large global electrical utility companies. Hmm. So I think, you know, really getting that information in the hands of people and and watching the sort of shift that happens in people's eyes when they understand for the first time that this can be a tool in the toolbox of really ending energy poverty, that's a game changer. That's really helpful. So let's talk about some of the specific places in which you work, maybe starting with India, which is a place that we, along with our India uh, colleagues, work on. What uh, India is often credited with setting ambitious electrification goals, but oftentimes those policy goals being criticized for not providing or mandating adequate enough levels of electricity access as well. But can you explain what Power for All's work in India has been doing so far and the scale of that, the challenges that you face or the progress that you've seen so far? 
Well, I think, you know, so first of all, I mean, you have to applaud the ambitions of the Indian government to get energy to everyone as quickly as possible. And so I think, you know, that country has really got it right in terms of the ambition level. And what's been amazing in India is, you know, just the flourishing of companies and the incredible amount of connections that have been able to be achieved through this sector. And in fact, I think one of the great things that we see in India is how closely the MFI or my finance institutions have really helped and worked with this sector to, to drive adoption of these products and services. You know, the challenge, I think, is a couplefold. So one, again, it, it comes down to shifting the narrative and I think challenging what, what might not be a really adequate description or definition of what energy access is. So obviously we've seen a lot of news from the Indian government and they even have an app that um, tracks the amount of connections and extensions of the grid and, and this sort of thing. But the truth is, is that the, the definition in many cases, and there was a discussion underway to change this about a year ago, but the definition of electrification right now is basically getting a wire to a village. And what that means is essentially maybe if 10% of a village has connection to grid-based energy, then it's considered electrified. But that's still leaving, again, the vast majority of the population without any reliable, safe, clean access to energy and not getting people out of their situation where they're having to rely on kerosene or diesel or even candles sometimes for light at night and for, for energy after hours. So I think that that definition within the government is something many practitioners in the country have said they would like to see changed. And in terms of the other work there, I mean, I think really working on the narrative itself and shifting the way that this sector is talked about has been important. Oftentimes, you know, India is a huge country and every state there is so distinct and so different. And there's certainly some states that have seen a lot of progress and a lot more acceptance of decentralized renewables technology. But overall, I think one of the great things actually of my uh, compatriot, Willie Brent, has been able to help the Indian sector to organize is a medium channel and a full-on, just specifically dedicated channel to raising awareness about decentralized renewables and what they can do. But in many cases, you know, we've heard a lot of great things about mini grids and what they've been able to do and, you know, just how important part they are out of the agricultural economy there. And, you know, when it comes to success, it's actually talking about those successes and making the application of these products and technologies real that I think Powerful has, has really filled a gap in the market to do. And how does the work that you just described in India or the experience working in a place like India differ or is similar to places, other places where you work like Nigeria? So first of all, I mean, India is, you know, a, a straight out middle income country at this point. Even though there's still a lot of poverty there, it's in a very different situation than many of the countries we work in in Africa. I also think one of the things that we've seen is a little distinct is there's a really great openness in Africa to working with organizations like ours and to being open to a sort of all of the above or all hands on deck approach. So you know, we're not necessarily having to convince people as much to sort of change the way they think about the decentralized sector. It's more of how can we help the market grow? And so whether that's our standard approach with, you know, media and, and getting the ecosystem working together towards a shared goal, or if it's meeting with the governments themselves and, and helping them understand the value of a specific energy access target and a carve-out for decentralized, there's just a real openness and willingness to work together. And, and I think 
you know, many of the African countries just sort of on a different development horizon than India. I think there's a, a real desire to leverage as much donor interest as possible, whereas India certainly has a ton of its own resources now and, and definitely leveraging a lot of its own money to really affect the change on its, on its own two feet. What about the, you know, because you, you just mentioned, so you work in India, you work in Nigeria, Sierra Leone, a number of other places. Across the board, you've got to think about the mechanics of promoting distributed electricity access. And, and part of that is to be able to, as you say, change the narrative and talk about what's happening on the ground so people have a really good understanding of where the opportunities lie. I mean, are there things that are, you know, becoming kind of a core part of how you engage with different communities and think about the policy and regulatory structure? to enable distributed electricity generation, like things like subsidies or how you work with utilities. I mean, how do you guys approach the sort of policy, regulatory, and then sort of utility apparatus in the different places where you where you operate? Yeah, great question. So, um, well, again, Power for All's theory of change is essentially the following, which is, you know, first of all, you have to challenge business as usual, right? So that's some of what we've been talking about so far. And then you also have to provide another alternative solution, which is deeply related to really bolstering the reputation, legitimacy, and credibility of what decentralized renewables can do. And so with that, you know, you're actually creating a belief that there's a different future. And it's not just that there's always going to be energy poor people, right? But that in fact, we can have energy access and we can have it now. And when you create that belief, you're also establishing political will. And an important thing is to get that political will institutionalized in some way. So a couple of responses. So first of all, last year we did a report on national policy and we identified very clearly the specific types of policies that are most associated with rapid growth of this sector. So in some cases, it's it's things like you would expect, right? So low duties, low VAT for solar products or any energy products that you know really help to achieve electrification goals. But in other cases, it is, it is these sort of leadership initiatives where you know you've got a government that's committed to universal energy access by a certain date say Sierra Leone by 2025. And then building on that, it's also been really important to have a specific target for decentralized renewables. And then ideally, someone in head of a rural electrification agency that's adequately empowered to really sort of drive that sector. So that's that's sort of it on one level. And then when it comes to working with utilities, we're actually just about to launch a new initiative in a few weeks called Utilities 2.0. And that's sort of always been the hope, as I, I think I said at the very beginning of the podcast, is to have decentralized and centralized at the same table with the same voice and level of legitimacy as part of the energy sector. And so what we're going to be doing in a few weeks is gathering north and south utilities centralized and decentralized companies together around the same table to identify the regulatory technology and, you know, related policy issues that are preventing this vision of a utility that is able to get, you know, safe, reliable, affordable, clean energy to all of its customers at once. And so, so for us, I mean, utilities in the developing world have a lot of challenges. I mean, almost everyone is loss leading. Very few have a real successful approach when it comes to being a profitable entity. And so in an ideal world, you know, what we're going to do is see some transformation in the way utilities are thinking about this sector. We're already seeing it, but really seeing that this sector can be, again, another tool in the toolbox for the utilities to meet 
their public contract, right, and, and their social license to operate, which is the provision of energy services to all of its customers. That's really exciting. So you said it's called Utilities 2.0? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. So maybe as a last question, because I think you talked a lot about the way in which Power for All is looking to mobilize a narrative about distributed electricity resources as a, as a sort of valid and, and very strategic part of the dialogue about how to meet not only energy access goals, but the entire suite of responsibilities that any you know government or or uh, or utility uh, has to to its population that it covers one of the analogies we get a lot here for when people think about distributed energy resources is the way in which they enable different communities to access a whole host of new opportunities, sort of akin to the, the, the sort of adoption of mobile phones and that how that became quite you know, viral in lots of different places in the developing world and that that enabled folks through microfinance and access to new technologies and communication services as not only just a way of having more sort of mobile connectivity, but also to enable a bunch of different services and be a part of the recipe of whatever it is that helps to create greater economic growth. I hear the analogy a lot that distributed electricity resources will sort of proliferate in the same way that you've seen things like mobile phones or mobile uh, mobile banking devices and things like that. Can you talk about the way in which you guys think about distributed electricity resources in the communities in which you work and what they enable beyond just the electricity that they provide and how you're working on that side of the strategy, the broader sort of economic development side and not just sort of the energy side of the equation. And is that, a, is that the right analogy? Is that, I mean, are, are these the kinds of penetration rates that we should expect for distributed electricity resources? So thanks for bringing up the mobile phone analogy. I mean, I've been working in the sector for so long that I often forget <laughs> to bring it up myself. But we take a lot of inspiration, right, from the absolute hockey stick that you saw with mobile phone adoption. But what's really not talked about very much is that it didn't start out like that. Like, it took a minute, in fact, a few years for mobile phones to really see that level of rapid adoption. And why? What happened? What changed? Well, if you look back to the size of that mobile phone market, when it was still at about 2% penetration, basically what you saw was three things change. One was the availability of inexpensive hardware. Two was the proliferation of software or the ability to do bite-sized payments, essentially, whether it's scratch cards or what have you. And then lastly, competition. And as soon as those three factors got into play, you saw a dramatic uptick in, in adoption and a complete change in affordability of access to these devices. And we have a lot of those same competitive advantages as a sector. I mean, really low cost of hardware, especially with the incredibly sharp declines in the cost of solar, um, rapid performance improvements in terms of batteries and what they can do, and lights as well. So so we really take not just inspiration, but there's a lot of just parallels in the development of the sector. And so it's always been the powerful perspective that, you know, that's a source of inspiration, but what we need is a similar enabling environment, right? So it's getting the right regulations in place, it's getting the right activation within the sector and really spurring that competitive spirit. So your question about sort of what does it look like on the ground and how do these new energy companies, right, these new utilities 2.0, 
start to make a difference in development outcomes. Well, stretching all the way back to my time at Delight, you know, it's super clear that those outcomes were recognized fairly quickly. So benefits to changes in people's life and opportunity by getting off of kerosene, by getting off of diesel. These things kind of manifested quite quickly, mostly in anecdotal evidence to be sure, but you know, stories of people whose lives changed because they didn't have to suffer from smoke inhalation. Their sense of well-being and their opportunities changed because they could work later or study later, um, what have you. Now, so, so I think that's, that's sort of one level of conversation. But in addition to that, the sector talks quite often about two additional topics. And one is what's known as the energy ladder. And the other is really the low of hyper-efficient appliances and what that's going to make possible in people's lives. So the idea of the energy ladder is that the savings that one accrues by instead of throwing their money to kerosene every month or putting their money into a diesel generator, but they're actually saving that money and and that those those savings can be accrued in a way that allows people to buy higher levels of access or higher levels of electricity. So someone might start out with like a $7 lantern and then quickly move up to the, the $30 version, say, that has three lights and a mobile phone charging. Um, so that in itself, I think, you know, speaks to sort of the pathway in the future for improving people's options and choices. But beyond that, the role of hyper-efficient appliances is just not to be underestimated. I mean, almost all of the well-known international companies now working in the sector also offer a suite of appliances. Uh, many of the companies are also thinking strategically about the value of brand and the relationship with the customer, which is not necessarily something a utility, a traditional utility, thinks about. Mm -hmm. But the idea here is to create customer pathways and long-term relationships that enable the selling of additional appliances like refrigerators. Right, that allow people to store food or store medicine uh, effectively um, over a longer period of time is definitely part of what many of these companies are looking at, um, as well as building a, you know, real credit histories and being able to not just offer what you would think of as a traditional you know, uh, energy service or good, but beyond that. And you know, stretching all the way back to the United States and how electricity really took off in this country, I mean, many of the utilities, these smaller local utilities, used to sell white goods. And so if you think about the parallel to today and you think about these new small energy companies, right, working together to sell a new type of white good that changes people's lives, uh, it really the sky's the limit about what can be created in terms of development outcomes. Christina, I have to ask a technical question. What's a white good? Oh, right, like, um, you know, a washer, dryer. Ah, oh, okay. Thank you. I never, yeah. I never <laughs> heard that term before. So that's really, really instructive. <laughs> you can tell I'm an energy geek. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm not enough of one apparently on that side of the equation. That's, that's excellent. No, thank you. Listen, I think that this has been a really interesting conversation. I think Power for All is doing a great job making a really coherent narrative for a sector that is changing very, very quickly. Um, and in fact, you know, changing most of the conversation around the future of the electric power sector in many of the world's fastest, most developing countries. And we certainly benefit from the work that you all do. I just want to say thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. And uh, we'll be looking forward to more of your future work. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'm Sarah Ladislaw with the CSIS Energy and National Security Program. And thanks for listening to Energy 360.